Um, <laughs> well, uh, Elizabeth Hardwick has done me the great favor uh, and shown the great good sense to, to uh, make sure that I didn't talk too long in my introduction, so I, I uh, of course, will not. But uh, I, I did want to say that I'm very honored and, and a little cowed to be introducing her tonight because though I've known her uh, casually over the last 20 years, I guess, and interviewed her in her lovely apartment about various literary figures on the scene, uh, for me she's very much more than that, not only a person that you can actually look up in the New York phone book and call on the telephone, but uh, not that I recommend you all do this, but uh, <laughs> she's really a very central figure, in some ways the central figure now in the literary life of our times. Uh, and I wish it's a pity that she's not reading from her own canon, because there's such a wealth from which to choose. I remember when I was working on my first biography of Delmore Schwartz, I used to go and read the old partisan reviews in the library from the 40s and 50s. And every time I was looking for articles by my subject, my eye would be caught by something that Elizabeth had written, which was always very arresting and entertaining. I'll just read one sentence in the interest of brevity. The Big Clock by Kenneth Fearing is a well-done book, though not to my mind worth doing. <laughs> and uh, uh, a half century later, her uh, edge and wit are undimmed, as I read in her bio uh, review of Jeffrey Myers' biography of Edmund Wilson in the uh, New Yorker a few months ago. A great many bricks of grad grind fact, whether laudatory or dismissive, are bound to destroy the fluid nature of human lives, yet facts are the stuff of biography. Well, this is simply the way that she writes, and, and if you're familiar with her collections of essays, A View of My Own and Seduction and Betrayal, you see that they achieve the kind of casual authority that really, I think, only the very best critics possess. Her essays, which I've had the pleasure of rereading on the Brontes, on Dorothy Wordsworth, on Sylvia Plath, they shine with a, an erudition lightly worn, if she were, as if she were confiding her enthusiasms to the reader. And I think the key here is that she really has a voice. Uh, and when I, when I try to think of critics that she resembles, I think of Virginia Woolf, or maybe further back, Hazlitt. Uh, but a really, of critics of, in our own time, there aren't very many, unfortunately. Maybe Alfred Kazin. But really, she's practicing a trade that uh, is um, not one that has many uh, successors. But in the interest of brevity, I, I will curtail my remarks with a, a, an anecdote. Uh, I called her up yesterday to talk about what she was going to read tonight, and I said that she had a very nice write-up in New York Magazine this week. She said, I don't take New York Magazine. I just happened to buy it to check the answers to last week's crossword puzzle. <laughs> and there it was. I had no idea. But I think it's just that lack of uh, uh, vanity, personal vanity, that kind of modesty, that self-effacement that's made her the great critic that she is. Thank you. Thank you, James. That was longer than I thought. <laughs> no, it wasn't too long, uh, but I'm very grateful for those kind words, which you, uh, which you gave a lot of thought to, as one always has to do, of course, which I guess non-writers don't know. Uh, but I do thank you. Now, this... Um, this program, I don't know whether it's a series of programs, but it had the title um, of something about the writer's canon, but I don't have a canon. And I was thinking that were I to think of having a canon, which I don't, <coughs> I would have to start, of course, with that um, uh, great work, of, the greatest work of short fictions, 
Genesis, the book of Genesis. But that, that would have to be the beginning of the canon. But what I'm doing is quite different from that. These are all books that I care a lot about, but um, I'm reading little bits here and there from them. And uh, the general drift of what I'm doing, or, the, or what I'm doing, are the prose of poets, which has a particular, I don't know, it's always had, I've always had a particular affection for them, and I guess I know why, I suppose. It's because of the freshness of the pro prose, the freshness of the language, the freshness of the ideas, the intuitive nature of it, the totally unacademic and un sort of unprofessional, sort of offhand way of, of doing things that is so beguiling, and the kind of freedom uh, it's almost as if in these books you're not required to do this. I mean, you know, this is not your profession exactly. And so, the first thing I'm going to read from, and I could have chosen a hundred other books, and people who know more than I do could have chosen a thousand different. And even at four o'clock this afternoon in the first book I'm going to read from, I, I almost changed which essay I was going to read. I'm not reading the total thing. I've made, had to make little marks. But this is a wonderful book by the poet, a prose book by the poet William Carlos Williams called In the American Grain. And it is an odd book for him to have written. It's, it's really an extraordinary book in a way. The, <clears throat> the chapters are quite demanding and he knows all the history and yet it's all written in his own way. Red Eric, here are some of the chapters. The Discovery of the Indies, uh, Cortez and Montezuma, The Fountain of Eternal Youth, De Soto and the New World, Sir Walter Raleigh, so on. George Washington, Slavery, and so on. So it, it's, I've always thought of it as one of those great oddities which I particularly treasure. Well, I'm going to read some parts, some snippets more or less, from the chapter called The Voyage of the Mayflower. Now, he doesn't like the, he doesn't like the Puritans much. <coughs> and it's sort of obscure as to what he's saying, but that's what, at least in my view, makes it so beautiful. So I'll just read you a bit, and you'll get, or, or quite a bit of it, since I'm here um, for the evening. Um, is the Voyage of the Mayflower. Where are we, if I can see here? Um, <coughs> the, pil <coughs> the Pilgrims were seed of Tudor's England's, <coughs> oh, I'm sorry. The Pilgrims were seed of Tudor's in. England's lusty blossoming. And then he says, in these little pips, which are uh, the pips of the blossoming of Tudor England, the Puritans, a nadar, sure as the sun was reached, in which lay the character of the beginning of North America, as particles stripped of wealth, mortifying as they were mortified, greatly suffering, greatly prepared to suffer. They were the perfect sprout for the strange continent God had driven them to. <clears throat> but Puritans, as they were called, if they were pure, it was more since they had nothing in them of fulfillment than because of positive virtues. By their very emptiness, they were the fiercest element in the battle to establish a European life on the New World. The first to come as a group of a desire sprung within themselves, <clears throat> they were the first American democracy. And it was they, in the end, who would succeed in making everyone like themselves. No man led them, there was none. Stripped and little, he uses that little about them a, a number of times. They came resting on no authority but the secret warmth of their tight-locked hearts. 
but unhappily never had they themselves nor had anyone penetrated there <coughs> sorry <coughs> to see what was contained in the heart the emptiness about them was sufficient was sufficient terror for them to look not to look further the jargon of god which they used was their dialect by which they kept themselves surrounded surrounded by the biblical dialect as by palisades. That seems very lovely, I think, even if you don't like the thought. Um, they pleaded weakness. They called continually for help, I suppose, back abroad and friends and other dissenters and so on, while working shrewdly with their hands all the while. They asked protection, but the real help had been to make them small small and several, several, and each a shell for his own soul. Williams always put soul in this essay in quotations. Um, and the soul, question mark, a memory or a promise or nothing. Um, okay. The dreadful and curious thing is that man despoiled and having nothing must long, must long most for that which they have not. And so one, one of the intensity of their emptiness, imagining that they are full, deceive themselves and all the despoiled of the world into their sorry beliefs. It is a spirit that existing nowhere in them is forced into their dreams. The pilgrims, they, the seed, instead of growing, look black at the world and damning its perfection prized a zero in themselves. And so they stress the spirit for what else could they do? And this spirit is an earthly pride which they, prideless, referred to heaven and the next world. And for this we praise them. Instead of for the one thing in them that was valuable, their tough littleness, and weight, the weight of so many to carry through the cold, <coughs> not their brokenness, but their projection of the great flower of which they were the seeds. The pilgrims were mistaken not in what they did, because they were hard, went hard to work with their hands and heads, but in what they imagined for their warmth. But it is sordid that a rich world should follow apathetically after. Their misfortune has become a ghost that dominates us all. It is they who have invented the soul, in quotations. But the perversion is for this emptiness, this dream, this pale negative. And let's see, okay. If the Puritan in them could have ended with the entry into the new world and subtle changes of growth, had once been started, everything would have been different, but the character of the land was not favorable. They did try to land further south. Actually, they tried to land in Manhattan, which is where they were planning to come, but they didn't get here. Now, in fear and without guidance, really, lost in the world, it is they alone who would later at Salem, and I suppose he wants us to think of the witches here, have strayed so far, far, morbidly seeking the flame, that terrifying unknown image to which, like savages, they too offered sacrifices of human flesh. I guess that would be burning the witches. It is just such emptiness, revulsion, terror in all ages, which finds that, that which lost and de desperate men have worshipped. Now, in our, this book was written, I think, in the 19, 1929 or something, and, but what he ends up with, it's interesting because it's very much 1925. Okay, here is what he says in the end. Uh, where, uh, the result of that brave setting out of the pure pilgrims has been an atavism that thwarts and destroys the agonizing spirit, the agonized spirit that has followed like an idiot with undeveloped brains governs 
like a text our years. Here, souls perish miserably, or escaping, or here into grotesque designs of violence and despair. Today, it is a generation of gross know-nothingness, <coughs> a generation universally eagle, eager to barter, to barter permanent values in return for opportunistic material advantages, a generation hating those whom it obeys. What prevented the better growth? Was it England, the northern strain, this soil they landed on? It was, of course, the whole weight of the wild continent that made their condition of mind advantageous, forcing it to reduce its very light, its own light, to reproduce its own likeness and no more. Well, that's an odd feeling, I think, about the pilgrims. I hope it's not too offensive to you, but uh, it's written with its, it's his own voice, which of course you can easily see. The next couple of things I read are different. Everything is different. As I said, I really don't quite know what I have here. I thought a few, there are a few sort of uh, bits from Coleridge on Shakespeare and also a thing of um, T.S. Eliot on Byron. Coleridge gave these lectures on Shakespeare and he was in dreadful shape, a true junkie. He was a, really a profound junkie. And you got a most desolating picture of him uh, in uh, the wonderful Recollections of the Late Poets by De Quincey who went to see him in his miserable lodgings in London when he was giving these lectures and would find him in bed in this terrible state. <laughs> but in spite of that, these mostly, I think, were notes and were finally put together. Uh, just a few things. One about Ro Romeo and Juliet, just a, a sentence. All deep passions are a sort of atheism they believe in no future. About the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, whom I like quite a bit better than he does, because when she's asked any kind of question, like Lady Capulet says, where is my daughter? Well, she goes off on a sort of rampage, which sort of ends up with, oh, my aching back, almost literally, and things like that. But he, he doesn't like the nurse as well as I do. He says, you have the, in, in the nurse, you have the arrogance of ignorance with the pride of meanness. Now, I don't know what he means by meanness. I don't think he means mean-spiritedness. I think he means mean birth or something. Well, meanness of being connected with a great family. You have the grossness, too, which that situation never removes, though it sometimes suspends, suspends it. And arising from that, the little low vices attendant upon it, which indeed in such minds are scarcely vices. About Polonius, he says, and I think this is perhaps his best known of Coleridge's Shakespeare remarks, he says, Polonius is the personified memory of wisdom no longer possessed. In another instance on um, Polonius, he says, he's a man of maxims. A man of maxims is like a cyclops with one eye and that eye placed in the back of his head. Speaking of King Lear, he's very obscure on King Lear <coughs> and thinking about the opening with the testing of the daughters, he says, the strange yet by no means unnatural mix, mixture, this is in King Lear, of selfishness, sensibility, and habit of feeling derived from and fostered by the particular rank and usages of the individual. The intense desire to be intensely loved, selfish and yet characteristic of the selfishness of a loving and kindly nature. It's all these contrasts that give such pleasure to me, the selfishness of a lovely and kindly nature. Uh, <clears throat> the self 
craving, selfish craving, after a sympathy with a prodigal disinterestedness, contradicted by its own ostentation and the mode and nature of its claims, the anxiety, the distrust, which, more or less, which is more or less necessary for all selfish affections. The habit, the inveterate habit of sovereignty will always convert a wish into a claim. All right, now I'm gonna give a little bit of T.S. Eliot on Byron. I don't quite agree with him either. It's a w wonderful on the poetry, uh, but uh, he's, I, I suppose I'm choosing these uh, sort of character pictures because they're more interesting for this occasion, but not, not always more interesting, but um, there's a lot more to Byron than this. Byron's letters and journals are among the most wonderful works in English, the whole volumes of them. They are so witty and so alive that they just sort of transcend almost anything you can think of, especially the letters to the mischievous and troublesome Lady Caroline Lamb, and then to Lady Annabel Milbank, whom he pursued for her money, because he was broke, as always. And then, when she, it was a disastrous marriage, it was dreadful, but then when she finally agreed to marry him, he wrote to a friend, I have won, exclamation point. It never rains, but it pours. <laughs> Which it did with, uh, it was, she was, um, gifted somewhat in mathematics and science, and also she wished to reform him, which she didn't succeed in doing, but he called her the princess of parallelograms. <laughs> <laughs> Many other amusing things. Well, now here's what uh, Eliot, in part of his wonderful essay on Byron says, he is, of course, brilliant. Oh, well, this is me on Eliot. <laughs> I bet it's not brilliant. <laughs> I was starting to explain. <laughs> Eliot is brilliant on the poetry, but he doesn't particularly admire the Byron persona, to use that word. Uh, all right, let's see what, what he says. Okay, here's Eliot on Byron. He's for some reason in this essay comparing a bust of Scott, because there's a Scottish side to Byron, I suppose, in the ancestry. Somehow that gets there, but he thinks of the noble head of Scott, uh, though he thinks Byron's a better poet. However, he says, when he's, Eliot starts to imagine a bust of Byron, he says, that pudgy face suggesting a tendency to corpulence, that weakly sensual mouth, that restless triviality of expression, and worst of all, that blind look of self-conscious beauty. Byron is a man who is every inch the touring tragedian. With his charlatanism, he has also, this is, mo now this is, I skipped a bit, this is his sort of summation of his character. <coughs> With his charlatanism, he has also an unusual frankness. With his pose, he is also a contumacious poet in a solemn country. With his humbug and self-deception, he has also a raffish honesty. He is at once a vulgar patrician and a dignified tosspot. With all his bogus diabolism and his vanity of pretending to disreputability, he is, however, genuinely disreputable. <laughs> I think that's the most wonderful sort of ending there of you pretend to be disreputable and you actually are. Okay, um, where are we here? Uh, yes, the next thing, <coughs> thing I was gonna do and I couldn't decide which to do here of the a book I've had for a long time, it's a translation by William J. Smith of the uh, of 
prose writings of Jules Laforgue, and they're all wonderful, and it hard, was hard for me to choose between Laforgue on Corbier or on, on Baudelaire. <laughs> so I thought, now see, what did I decide? I, I thought I would do just a few of, of on um, Baudelaire because the work is better known not only to me, but probably to some of you. Okay. And so now here, that this is just what I, I'm trying to say of these sort of offhandness of these things, which are so, which are so beguiling to me. Notes on Baudelaire. I have to listen to all these adjectives about the leading figures of France. After chaste and fatalistic Alfred de Vigny, apathetic, bucolic, old and absurdly gallant Victor Hugo, pagan Gautier, worldly Musset with his schoolboy bombast, probing Balzac with his echoes of George Sand, the Raphaelite Lamartine, it was Baudelaire who presented woman as a sphinx in spite of herself, a creature one could disrobe, sub subject, subject to the acute experimentation of an idealistic inquirer, a harem cap that can be bruised, uninformed, but always enraptured. He was the first to write about himself in a moderate confessional manner and to leave off the inspired manner. He was the first to speak of Paris from the point of view of one of her daily damned. And now there's a little parenthesis here, which is beautiful about Paris. The gas, the lighted gas jets flickering with the wind of prostitution, the restaurants and their air vents, the hospitals, gambling, the logs resounding as they're dropped on the paved courtyards, and the chimney corner, and the cats, beds, stockings, drunkards, and modern perfumes, all in a noble, remote, and superior fashion. The first also, uh, Byron is the first also who accuses himself rather than, who accuses himself rather than appear triumphant who shows his wounds, his laziness, his bored uselessness at the heart of this dedicated workaday century. He's the first to bring to our literature the boredom implicit in sensuality, together with its strange decor, the sad alcove, and to take pleasure in doing so, the painted mask of woman and its heavenly extension in a sunset, spleen and illness and damnation on this earth. With a spirituality which is English, almost Norwegian, I, thought, I don't know what he means by that, but it, it's, it's rather arresting. With a spirituality which is English, almost Norwegian, Baudelaire is practically an oriental esthete. We can understand that easily. He may be cynical, but there never is there a vulgar false expression among those with which he chooses to clothe himself. He is always polite to what is ugly. He always has good manners. Um, poetry, he says, will be for the initiated. I have been damned by the public, so the public will not be admitted here. And so first of all, to keep the bourgeois at a distance, one steals oneself with a little, more than a little humbug. One envelops oneself in extra lucid allegories. One appears scorned and spurned by the bourgeois, by the bourgeois's wife who treats you like a leper like one of the suffering elect of the Middle Ages who had the gift of vision and who consequently was burned as a witch. One lo loves either a black Venus or a heavily painted Parisian. 
One overindulges in perfumes no reader can locate. One speaks of opium as if one used it every day. Oh, Baudelaire, Cat, Hindu, Yankee, Episcopalian, I don't know what that means, alchemist, Cat, his way of saying my dear in French, um, in, the, in, in, in opening poems, Yankee, the use of very before an adjective, like his descriptions of landscape. Let's see. His, his poetry, Hindu, his poetry is closer to the Indian than that of Le Conte Lille for all its erudition and flashy padding. Now, let's see. In his youth, a romantic, picturesque, let me see where I end here. Um, he remains light and airy and noble. Even in its dignified context, it is not out of place to say about him and about this whole person that he's noble and calm. Neither a great heart nor a great mind. And yet what plaintive nerves, what nostrils open to everything, what a magic voice. Well, that's <laughs> Now this uh, final thing is a little, it's sort of in two parts more or less. It's about, um, it comes from the wonderful, I mean, while I'm reading it is from the wonderful uh, biogra uh, biographical work by um, uh, by Boris Pasternak, and what I'm uh, concerned to read here is his the wonderful part of this book on the death of Mayakovsky. It is uh, to me one of the most beautiful and interesting things ever written by one point about another. I thought I might do uh, tell you a little bit about Mayakovsky. Um, so that you get the flavor of what this person meant in both a positive and a negative sense to Pasternak. Um, Mayakovsky died and he killed himself in, I think it was 1930, when he was 36. Now, all right, a little bit about him so that we can, all these pages are sticking together. This is The Bed Bug and Selected Poetry and uh, uh, with Patricia Blake's introduction from which I'm taking my information. Um, well, I'm sorry, but having anything <laughs> uh, Anyway, okay. Uh, he was born in the country to rather well-to-do parents who, I guess, uh, came down somewhat in the world. But he didn't, unlike the, most of the other Russian poets, he didn't love the Crimea or didn't actually love the country. He said, um, one of the things he said was so interesting. Now, I don't, all right, here it is. Uh, during, he was taking an excursion with his father and in a distance, he glimpsed a factory which was illuminated at night. And th about that, um, in his own autobiography, Mayakovsky makes a typical statement. He says, after seeing electricity, I lost interest in nature, not up to date enough. So that's very typical of him. Um, and so on. Then he becomes this, uh, he becomes a really sort of a celebrity in every sense that we think of it today, even in the way he presented himself, in the way the public looked at him. And even today, there are Mayakovsky statues all over Russia. And, uh, but he was a very dramatic figure, riding a motorcycle, I think, if they had motorcycles then. I always had the feeling that he did, and wearing black jackets and hats and a yellow jacket and so on. 
being quite different from everyone else, uh, the, uh, let's see, what have I got here? Okay. Um, unlike his colleagues, Mayakovsky was a futurist. That was a school of poetry in Moscow for the fun of it. On the eve of revolution, Mayakovsky could be found in some public hall or lecture or theater wearing a top hat and a, with a large wooden spoon in his lapel as a boutonniere and carrying a gold-topped cane. <clears throat> he was over six feet tall and looked like a boxer. He lowered er over everyone like a storm cloud. A scruffy shock of dark hair tumbled over his deeply lined forehead. His thick lower lips curved toward the left insolently in conversation. In manner, he was alternately morose and exuberant, taciturn and witty, cruel and supremely gentle. But whatever his posture, his genius seemed unmistakable, a goad to some and an insult to others. So, um, not everyone liked him. Boonin found him impossible, his posturing impossible. But um, Stalin came to like him as we will see in the end when it's sort of the end of what the great Pasternak has to say about him. Okay, Pasternak met him before his death a few years and he was sort of entranced by him and puzzled somewhat and uh, thoughtful about him. He says, uh, see if this is the right page. Okay, he says, they're at some sort of cafe or something. His calculated hardness was easily interpretable as a distinguishing mark of other professions and conditions. He was not alone in his impressiveness. His friends sat beside him. Of them, one, like him, was, was playing the dandy. The other, like him, was an authentic poet. That's uh, trying to show him in his circles. But for all, these all of these similarities did not diminish Mayakovsky's exceptional quality, but stressed it. A distinct, as distinct from playing each game separately, he played them all at once. A contempt of acting a part, in contempt of acting a part, he played at life. The latter, without any thought, one might one might have of his future and one caught at a glance. Uh, he had as much as of the expressive and final about him as the majority have little, issuing usually as they do, rarely as they do, and only in cases of exceptional upheavals. It was as if he existed on the day following a terrific spiritual life lived through for use in all subsequent events. Uh, his genius was a decision, and a meeting with it had once so amazed him that he, it became his theme's prescription for all time of having met his own genius, for the incarnation of which he gave the whole of himself without pity or vacillation. He was still young. The forms destined, destined for his theme still lay ahead, but the theme was insatiable and, and intolerant of procrastination. And so at the beginning, it was necessary for its benefit to savor the rapture of the future in advance. And rapture in advance realized in the first person is posing. Uh, and besides this, the main spring of his lack of shyness was a wild shyness, and beneath that his pretended freedom, an apprehensive lack of freedom. The mechanism of his yellow coat was just as delusive, and now this second sentence has always stayed in my mind since I first read it years ago. With it, this is the yellow coat. With it, he was not fighting against the middle class jackets at all. He was fighting against 
the black velvet of the talent and himself. I just find that so beautiful and so engaging. I can't explain why, but the black velvet of the talent and himself whose luscious dark brown forms began to trouble him earlier than happens with less gifted people. Uh, okay, now I want to go to the, this is my last thing, for the, <coughs> to the day of his death, and uh, Pasternak is there, and the morning of the death, and how some passages from how he writes about it. The opening passage, I, I, I don't know, perhaps I can't explain what it is that I have always found so extraordinarily beautiful and expressive about this because it's simple, but here it is. The beginning of April surprised Moscow in the white stupor of returning winter. On the 7th, it began to thaw for the second time. And on the 14th, when Mayakovsky shot himself, not everyone had yet become accustomed to the novelty of spring. I find the giving of the dates, the 4th, and that the, there was still winter there, and then on the 14th, and then on the 7th and the 14th, and then the little phrase, and on the 14th, when Mayakovsky shot himself, not everyone had yet become accustomed to the novelty of spring. As soon as I heard of the disaster and so on, I summoned, I mean, because various people who have appeared, wives and friends and so on, <coughs> in the biography will appear here. Um, let's see, yeah, he summoned Xenia. That was his own wife, um, uh, Pasternak. Outside these gates, the gates of, of um, Pasternak's house, outside these gates, life flowed on as usual, indifferent life, as, it's wrong, as it is wrongly called. The participation of the asphalt courtyard, eternal participant in such dramas, was left in our wake. The spring air wandered weak-legged weak over the rubbery mud, and seemed to be leaning, learning to walk. Cocks and children loudly proclaimed their presence abroad. The train crambled slowly up the slope and so on. The sudden mist of mourning, M-O-U-R-N, of grieving, was interspersed even here with anxious conversation carried on in a low voice as at the end of a requiem. When after, as at the end of a requiem, requiem, when, after a service as sticky as jam, the first whispered words are so dry that they seem to come from under the floorboards and to smell of mice. I'm not sure what he means there, but wonderfully expressive. In, in one of these intervals inside the house, the actual house, the porter carefully entered the room, a chisel inserted in his top boot, and he removed the winter frame and opened the window slowly and noiselessly. It was still cold outside without a coat, and sparrows and children were encouraging one another with their endless chirping. The, uh, leaving the dead man on tiptoe, someone asked softly whether a telegram had been set out sent off to so on and so forth. The apparent indifference of the boundless world pointed in through the window. Along its whole length, length great trees stood guarding a frontier that seemed to divide earth, earth and sea. I gazed at the branches with these warm, eager buds and tried to imagine that scarcely conceivable London far, far beyond the trees where the telegrams had gone. I think that was to one of, um, of, of uh, Mayakovsky's lovers. He lay on his side, his face turned toward the wall, somber, tall, a sheet covering him to his chin, his, half, his mouth half open as in sleep. Turning proudly away, 
from all of us, even when he was lying down, even in his sleep. He was going away from us in a stubborn endeavor to reach something. <clears throat> his face recalled the time when he had spoken of himself as he does in the first, in the first paragraph of A Cloud in Trousers. He speaks of himself as beautiful in my 21 years, 22 years. Um, for death had ossified a mask which rarely falls into his clutches. Um, let's see. Well, the sisters and various other Okay. Uh, toward the end. When I returned in the evening, he was already in his coffin. <clears throat> the faces which had filled the room during the day had given place to others. It was comparatively quiet. There was quiet. There was scarcely any more weeping. Suddenly outside underneath the window, I imagined I saw his life, which was now already, which now already belonged entirely to the past. <clears throat> I saw it move away obliquely from the window, like a quiet tree-bordered street resem resembling the Povra Skaya. And the first to take its stand in this street by the very wall was our state, a capital S, the communist state, our unprecedented and unbelievable state, rushing headlong, headlong toward the age and accepted by them forever. It stood there below. One, one could hail it and take it by the hand. Its palpable strangeness somehow recalled the dead man. The resemblance was so striking that they might have been twins. And it occurred to me then, in the same irrelevant way, that perhaps this man, that this man was perhaps this state's unique citizen. The novelty of the age flowed through his blood. His strangeness was the strangeness of our times of which, which half is as yet to be fulfilled. I began to recall traits in his character, his independence, which in, in many ways was completely original. All these were explained by his familiarity, oh, this is wonderful, all this last part, but all this was explained by his familiarity with states of mind which though inherent in our time, have not yet reached full maturity. He was spoiled from childhood by the future, which he mastered rather early and apparently without great difficulty. Uh, who was, um, as I said, sort of taken up by Stalin, so to speak. He said after his death, he began to be forcibly, forcibly introduced by the state like potatoes under Catherine the Great. This was his second death. He had no hand in it. Well, that's all of these little bits. Thanks. <laughs> Well, I, I, I think it's awful to ask for questions because people have to feel they have to ask them. Well, I'll leave it up to you. If you what? If you'd rather not, we don't have oh, to. Oh, does if, anyone have I, questions? I, if there's any, remember? if there are any questions, but I think, yeah. Um, why did, why I can't, I can't hear. Could you use the, we have standing That mic. looks like Nancy. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Nancy, isn't it? <laughs> Why did Vladimir Nabokov hate Pasternak? What did you, what did you want? Well, okay, say it again. Why, what? Okay, why did Nabokov, why did Nabokov hate Pasternak? Nabokov, did it, did Vladimir Nabokov. Yes, did he dislike? Well, he didn't. He didn't like, um, you know, the the novel. 
which he naturally wouldn't have. Well, he hated a lot of people, Dostoevsky among them. So, so there's no, there's really Nazi, not much to think about there. Uh, but um, I don't, I don't know. Um, I know he didn't like uh, um, what's the name of the novel? You know, anyway, Doctor Zivago, and he. I think one knew that he wouldn't, and so. Uh, but I don't, I don't know otherwise. There were so many writers he didn't like, but the, the main uh, sadness of some of uh, Nabokov's feelings is his uh, idea that Dostoevsky couldn't write and was a fraud. <laughs> he, he admired, of course, he, that when he admires somebody, there's nothing greater than like his little book on Gogol is one of the most beautiful treasures of one writer about another. That all of these books, most of them are published by New Direction. And you know, we've sort of forgotten what it was like to have a small company where when you look at your shelf, some of the things that you treasure so much were by them. But I don't know any more questions. Are there uh, contemporary writers whose occasional prose you have read and admired? What? Oh, of course, there, there are hundreds of people I could have put in oh, whose prose I've read. Yeah, I like everybody's prose. I like a lot of the prose. And, you, and well, this was confined to poets. And there are poets' prose I like. I like Robert Lowell's very much. I like Elizabeth Bishop's, and trying to think of those who wrote it, uh, who wrote prose. Oh, Sam, who? Who? I don't know his prose. Yeah. And I liked, I very much liked a prose book, a book of almost fiction by W.S. Merwin, uh, Merwin about his life in France. It's, it's called In the Uplands or something. It just came out a couple of years. It's very, very beautiful. Well, there's so many things one likes. <laughs> just about everything. <laughs> okay, thank you.